Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Chico Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say, I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of those cross images as we ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. The photo accompanying this devotional is the Millennium. The image of the cross in the Millennium covers only the lower half of the middle part of the image with a deep mix of blue, gray, and white clouds filling the background. The image was shot very soon after sunrise, and the inspiration of its name is because it was shot on January 1st, 2000, the first day of the new millennium. The location is the middle location, meaning it was the site that they moved the cross to, they being the school, before they completed the build-out of the school and eventually moved the cross again to its current site at the north end of their football field. For today's devotional, I'd like to start with a quote by Alexander McLaren, a Scottish preacher from the turn of the century, who once declared, The cross is the center of the world's history. The incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot round which all the events of the ages revolve. The testimony of Christ was the spirit of prophecy, and the growing power of Jesus is the spirit of history. When you look at this picture, the millennium, consider what I had just mentioned, that it was shot not just on a New Year's morning, but on the first morning of a new millennium and that it was shot after the first time it was moved from its original post to make way for a school campus and the construction to complete that school. And if you look across the images in this collection, you can see the cross before the school had their ground breaking, and then after it, and then after they moved it again. What I learned in making this diverse collection is that after the cross was moved and the construction began, is that no matter how much the landscape around it changed, the cross remained the same. And I can't help to think how this applies to our lives, both corporately and individually. Over the ages, over the millennia, I see how the early church so effectively shared the gospel of the cross, and it grew exponentially. I also read how faith became concentrated in Constantinople, and then institutionalized in Rome, 
And then after so many systemic errors against the people of faith, I read about Martin Luther and his great Reformation treatises, or more commonly called his protestations. And even though the church mitigated most of Luther's points of concern, it spawned immense new branches of new denominations, and from those many branches of sub-denominations over the millennia. And while some may argue that this denomination is the one real one, or maybe that those other ones drifted from the true gospel message, or how some churches inflicted much pain in the parishioners through the scandals of unethical leaders. But on the other hand, some might say that all the denominations drifted away in one form or another, which may be true, but to me, that possibility does not mean anything. Because no matter how many preachers, church councils, or in the case of the Catholic Church, the popes, or how many denominational tendencies come and go, the real story of what happened on the cross that day, that Good Friday, remains the same. And for us individually, no matter how many people hurt you, nor how much you have lost, nor how violently the tectonic plates of your life churn, and how everything turns upside down, the message of the cross remains the same. When you feel overwhelmed and abandoned, remember, Jesus knows what you are going through and is ready to help you. It reminds me of a poem by Samuel Rutherford which says, The cross of Christ is the sweetest burden that I ever bore. It is such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward to my harbor. These two things together, the burden and the hope, which is found in the cross. The sinner's prayer and baptism were born out of a need for Jesus and to be able to die and rise again with Christ. But a true and mature understanding of the cross inspires deep love for Jesus. It compels a person to make amends for his wrong or at least accept God's willingness, which Billy Sprague calls an irony that is spelled G-R-A-C-E. Now, I remember that Billy Sprague co-wrote a song called The Via Della Rosa, which was inspired from and is about the long journey that Jesus had to take, the long walk from the Praetorium up to Golgotha. And not just a walk, but a distance where each step was one of excruciating pain. And as Billy is known to claim, he is becoming an even more seasoned, one would say a veteran, sinner entering the winter of his life. The hope of the cross is that winter is not permanent. I like how he shares in one of his books of winter in only a time of dormancy and hibernation and that spring is the transition back to new life. The cross allows for the hope in rebirth and eternal life in heaven. I resonate as this was my epiphany as well, one involving my wife when she passed away. Yes, she passed from this dimension to another. But because she had accepted the sacrifice Jesus made for her on the cross, she never really died. And while my body is still here in this time and space, my spirit is already with her in heaven. And I like how Billy Sprague states another dichotomy. 
that to many the cross is perceived as the ultimate symbol of death. But to those of us who have meditated deeply upon it, the cross is the focal point of the great love behind life itself. And an understanding that removes any reason to fear death, knowing that to be absent in this life is to be present with Jesus. But more than assurance of eternal life in heaven, the truth in this here and now transcends the human nature of how to respond to the cares of life. This hope helps make our life through all the seasons of our life glorious, joyful, and more abundant. And yet, the ironies of these dichotomies are still around us. Some that are easier to accept when we realize that God's ways are above our ability to get our heads around those situations or the issues we're dealing with, at least on this side of glory. Many see death as permanent and life as temporary. However, a right perspective is that death is temporary and our lives, our spirits, are eternal. Just like how Jesus was born and brought new life to humanity in the darkest and coldest time of the year, and Easter, which reminds us of mortality and death in the tomb, but is illuminated by the supernatural power of the resurrection. Now, I do understand when he comments on the death of Jesus happening during the spring days of Passover. Yet, I've always focused on the new life aspect of the resurrection and how new life comes from death in one of two ways. One, from dormancy or hibernation to the phase of awakening and growth. We see this in animals like bears or plants like the bulbs of a lily. And the other, the second, is from actual death and then decomposition when the thing that died becomes food for the roots of plants that may bear fruit, providing substances for growth for creatures and then seeds for propagation of its species. And the direction of these thoughts found me pondering the lessons of seasons and of nature in general, lessons we can learn from, but also what correlation might there be to the seasons to the spiritual dimension of our humanity. Seasons that we may not be able to, and I suspect should not try, to avoid, or should not attempt to overcome, or should not attempt to get around. For example, if you are tired, should not the reaction be to hibernate, to sleep? This is a daily cycle, and those that try to avoid it can become very unhealthy rather quickly. So let's explore the annual cycles of our spiritual life with its four distinct cycles. But before we do, let's take a step back and take out our wide-angle lens so that we can see the 10,000-foot view and focus on why I say the seasons of our life should not be avoided. In a previous episode in this program, the Infinity at its Best episode, number 15, we discuss how everything that we see, perceive, or understand about our reality in the universe is built on waves. It has a duality of being both a particle and a wave. And the latter is what I'm focused on. What is a wave? Well, another duality. Yes, a noun and a verb. And the latter being my question, what action is it making? Another applicable name of a wave is a cycle. 
the wave travels up to one polarity and then down to the other polarity and back up and back down over and over and over again. This action of passing up to a positive polarity and down to the negative polarity is found at the subatomic level as well as the largest galaxies across the universe. Fractally, this helps me understand the extra-biblical phrase, so above, so below. But the point is that everything in our reality, the microscopic to the macroscopic, is built on waves, or as I said, cycles. And everything is built on and or affected by cycles and the duality of polarity. The continual path of the wave between positive and negative, and thus, from our human perspective, we experience dark and light, tired and rested, cold and hot, hungry and full, happy and sad, hard and soft, like ice or fluidity. These are polarities of the moment, but some are tied to a daily cycle and others are tied to annual cycles, meaning the annual trip of our planet around the sun. There are things our solar system cycle around, but I said all that to set the table around the concept of the annual trip around our sun, which, for the most part, for most areas of the planet, have four distinct cycles. And since these cycles affect everything on Earth, then it means it is not only affecting the physical aspect of who we are, but most importantly, the spiritual aspects of who we really are. To do so, let's drift from physics to scripture and under the perspective of its unavoidability, meaning we should let the paradox lead us to an acceptance instead of trying to find ways around the inevitable. In Genesis 8.22, we read, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God has initiated various eternal principles regarding time. The wise King Solomon observed these precepts in his description of the cycles of life as found in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. These principles apply to every living creature on this planet. Some aspects are easy to see, and others are subtle or almost impossible to see. And for a while, I thought maybe... I was the only one crazy enough to shoot the same object at the same location throughout the seasons. Fortunately, I found another artist with a great body of work about one object. Unfortunately, he's the only one out of many searching on the internet that I could find. 
but his work is of a majestic oak tree, and his name is Mark Hirsch. This tree is in Iowa, and you can dramatically see all four seasons through his collection. The tree never changes, but the environment radically changes around it depending on what part of the season Matt captures it. Regarding today's devotional, let's start with spring. One reason is that many cultures around the world and across the millennia begin their calendar year with the spring equinox. Many people groups like the Hebrews consider the spring equinox as a New Year's Day. It is the time of year that the warmer temperatures slowly increase, melt the snow, and eventually heat up the ground in related microclimates. The animals, insects, and microbes begin to awake from their hibernation, and the seeds begin to germinate and sprout. Trees, other than evergreens, that had just been a trunk and sticks, begin to sprout little buds and then leaves out of nowhere and eventually begin to bloom flowers that will become fruit in the summer. And the majority of the summer is a lesson in abundance as flora and fauna flourish and food and fullness abound. But before you know it, the hot temps begin to have its effect on the availability of water and thus wilt as many plants start the process of propagation, pushing out whatever mechanisms of seed packaging as much as it can. And yes, the plant either goes dormant or dies, but leaving its prodigy in the seeds. Eventually, the heat conquers the tree leaves as they begin to change color and become brittle. As the temperatures of autumn drop, the leaves slowly drop all around the base of the tree, leaving a layer or carpet of leaves. This layer of leaves provide insulation of warmth, protecting the roots from the cold snap to come. As the freeze approaches, the instincts of many of God's creatures intuitively kick in to look for a safe spot to hibernate. For those creatures that don't hibernate, let's say like the deer, the time from first frost, snowstorms, until a little bit after the spring equinox is a severe lesson of survival. For many weeks, the diet of the deer, for example, consists on tree bark. If they can find and or reach it, some creatures don't make it through the winter, becoming sustenance for other creatures also on the brink of starvation. Under the snow, all those leaves covering and insulating the roots are slowly but surely decomposing. Eventually, the science of winter is broken by the thaw of spring and everything wakes up again. And as the pattern of new life is replicated with cycles within cycles. Months like February and March show us that those leaves have decomposed into the soil and are now food for the roots as the trees awake, needing nutrition to generate new leaves on all its branches. And just as the tree is full of leaves and possible blooms, the winds of April began its process of naturally pruning off the weakest branches. And those branches with leaves, again, make a canopy of debris that becomes food and habitat for a myriad of creatures as it too slowly decomposes and enriches the soil. This is a very rudimentary description of the seasons in a typical northern hemisphere forest, but there are so many aspects of the seasons I'm leaving out. The aspects I called out were intentional as some have an analogous application to our spiritual life. Every Christian will experience different seasons in their walk with God. Each season presents its own set of benefits and extreme challenges. Our ability to determine which season we are in 
at all times will require discernment and an acute sharpness of spirit. But rest assured, sharpness of spirit is a worthy goal. Again, let's start in spring. Spring season is warmer, has more daylight hours, and is a time for planting new seeds because the ground temperatures get warm enough for germination. Everywhere we turn, we see the emergence of new life in the blooming flowers and different shades of green in the tree branches. And then we also see growing grass and bushes. And the experiential season of spring is characterized by a greater sense of God's activity in our lives. His right hand. New seeds of truth are planted in our minds and watered and cultivated through intimacy with Him and His Word. This season holds within it great hope. Hope that the planted seeds will eventually manifest in an abundant harvest of new souls for the kingdom of heaven. Now, the temperatures of summer can range from very warm to unbearably hot. Much attention is given to the growing plants through watering, pulling weeds, and keeping bugs and animals from destroying them. On the upside, the experiential season of summer in our lives symbolizes rapid growth, where we are so energized by what the Holy Spirit has planted in our hearts and minds that we want to share it with everyone. On the downside, we can become overzealous and get too many irons in the fire. It is important to realize that just because we see need, that doesn't mean God is calling us to meet every need. Awareness does not necessarily constitute action on our part. Take time to seek the Holy Spirit. God is an expert at weeding out unnecessary distractions that might keep us from expressing the fullness of His fruit in our lives. We need to depend on His will. In the part of the world where I live, the cooler temperatures of autumn bring refreshing relief from the dog days of summer. Up until the 16th century, harvest was the term used to refer to the season we now call autumn, or now more commonly referred to as fall. I suspect it's because of the falling leaves of the deciduous trees. I find it fascinating that their majestic hues signify their maturity. The application of this season of autumn in our life represents the abundant manifestation of the fruit of God's Spirit being expressed through our lives. This is a joyous season because this fruit is not result of our works, our trying hard to be more loving, joyful, peaceful, good, kind, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. It is the delectable, authentic fruit of shared intimacy with our Lord. Of course, the winter season is cold, sometimes life-threateningly cold. It has fewer daylight hours and is a time when many plants or trees and some animals are dormant. Although they may appear lifeless, their dormancy is actually part of their growth cycle. On the downside, the experiential season of winter is characterized by very little sense of God's love, presence, and activity in our lives. Some might say his left hand. Sometimes during this season, it is as if God has taken a permanent vacation. The upside to this bleak and barren season is that it creates a hunger to experience our beloved's presence, and it will cause us to seek him to meet our needs. And Matt Hirsch's photo collection of the oak tree got me thinking. Yes, there are four seasons in a calendar year. However, that is only one way to measure a season. That oak tree started as an acorn, one of hundreds of acorns that fell from a particular oak tree, or that fall from oak trees in general every year. 
which maybe one or two may actually sprout. And as Jesus details in his parable of the sower, Matthew 13, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced the crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what it was sown. Whoever has ears... Let him hear. And in verse 18, Jesus says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or 30 times what was sown. And for the little plant that actually does take, there are seasons to its development. The first is the seedling phase, the two little leaf sprouts, which at this stage is very vulnerable to a variety of scenarios that it could die by, just like we read in the parable. But the human equivalent would be an infant and toddler phase. The next would be when the seedling grows taller with eight or 12 or 16 leaves. It is much more hardy but still vulnerable. Human equivalent would be, say, from 5 to 12 years old. The third phase is when the plant has multiple branches and it starts to grow flowers. The human equivalent is the transition through and past adolescence. The last phase is when the flower produces fruits and seeds. The human equivalent is when they start to have offspring in the parenting phase. And the spiritual equivalent to me is the same. When someone is born again, they are babies. They can't digest meaty biblical concepts, but needs spiritual milk. Eventually, a new Christian, through prayer and Bible reading, can move into the ability to digest deep theological constructs. The next phase of maturity is moving on from a focus on themselves to being able to empathize and able to consider the needs of others as more than their own. And the last phase is when a new believer has grown to the point of being able to bring others through the process of becoming a Christian. The point with all I am sharing is to allow the season that you are in right now to run its full course. Our God is a good God, and it is always His intention to bless you despite the circumstances you may be facing. Hard times will bring forth good character if you allow God to perform His perfect will in your life. Do not overthink it or attempt to change the season you are in. Just as the day is balanced out by night, the seasons that you must walk through are designed by God to keep your life balanced. Paul's understanding of these precepts are evident in his letter to the Philippian church. 
when he declared, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is your source of power? If it is not Christ, the seasons of your life can and will become unbearable. Don't carry your own burdens. They are far too heavy. Hand them over to the Lord. Learn to trust in God's promises and Christ's power to give you strength. By submitting yourself to God, you can trust Him to bring you through every trial and circumstance to, quote, exalt you in due time, unquote, 1 Peter 5, 6. And with that, go in grace. May God keep you in His perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this devotional, the Millennium, along with my other Verspirations, check out Verspiration on Instagram. If your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Cross Collection products, hear other Cross podcasts, or my blog, then log on to RobbieHolt.com. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com. Come